It was one of the best purchases I've ever made. For Mother's Day, I went and bought Claire a knockout rose bush. Have you seen these things? They're amazing. I have no green thumb, but I got it in the ground and it just took over from there. This plant is wonderful. When it gets too big, I cut it back and it's resilient. It just keeps growing. And uh, seasonally, several times a year, it uh, produces these beautiful little rose uh, roses. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful plant. And because that plant is healthy, it's resilient, it's growing, it's beautiful. Well, did you know it's the same way with the church? When a church is healthy, spiritually healthy, it will be resilient. And when a church is healthy, it will grow spiritually and numerically. And when a church is healthy, it is a beautiful thing. A reflection of God's grace in the midst of a group of saved sinners. So I want to talk to you about what a healthy church looks like. The Bible doesn't leave us to wonder. We see it here in our text, Acts chapter 2. So keeping that in mind, turn with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. As we continue our study through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's living word. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the Bible says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the one true God. And you are awesome, you are mighty, you are majestic, you are sovereign, you are holy, and you are gracious. We are so grateful for who you are. And we are here, Lord, to worship you. We are here to ascribe to you the worth that is due your name. We are here to respond to all that you've done in our lives. And so, Father, would you use this time of Bible study to edify your people, 
to build up your church, to move us, Lord, towards church health so that we can be a beautiful reflection of your glory to a lost and dying world. So, Lord, have your way in our midst. Transform lives. Establish my steps in your word, Lord, and we ask and pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The context of this verse, or this passage of verses, is found in the verse immediately preceding this section. Look what it says in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stood up and preached a wonderful gospel message as God sent signs and wonders among the people of Jerusalem. He was explaining the pouring out of the Spirit, and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and He called people to decision, and 3,000 people received his word and were baptized. That's a pretty good day, isn't it? When your church grows by 3,000 people, that's that's pretty significant. And so the 120 followers of Christ that had been gathered in the upper room praying before the day of Pentecost became 3,120, just like that. God added to their number. You say, well, what happened next? Well, the next section that we just read, verses 42 through 47, explain how this church full of new believers functioned. And this this new church is very, very healthy. And and we see some marks of their health uh, in this section. So what I want to do is I want to just walk you through from this text five marks, five characteristics, if you will, of a healthy church. And the goal is that we learn these marks well and we emulate them, that we seek to be the kind of church that we're going to study today. So five marks of a healthy church. Number one, biblical teaching. Biblical teaching. You say, well, that goes without saying. Not so fast. We should not assume that just because a church calls itself a church, that it will be filled with biblical teaching. Don't assume that. Don't take that for granted. Look what it says here in verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. And so, we see that this this band of believers, this church in Jerusalem, was gathering together and they were focusing on the apostles' teaching. They say, wait, why were they focusing on the apostles' teaching? Well, if you look there in your notes, we see that God used the apostles to communicate his word to the early church. God used his apostles to communicate his word to the early church. Now remember, this church was gathering. This is uh, only about uh, 40 days after uh, the the, uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not... Uh, very long after, or about 50 days, after the the resurrection of of Jesus Christ. And so they did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. They didn't have all that. They didn't have what we call the New Testament. Now, they had the Old Testament. They did not have the New Testament. That body of truth that we call the New Testament was in development. God was using his apostles to write letters and others to to write gospels down so we can learn about the life and ministry of Christ and we can learn how the early church is to believe and to function. But that body of, of literature we call the New Testament had not been written yet for the most part. It was being developed. It was in development. And so God 
use his apostles to speak New Testament truth. He uses apostles to preach the Old Testament and to apply it to New Covenant believers. And through his apostles, he gave us this body of literature that you and I call the New Testament. This is a apostolic teaching. And it says here, they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they are devoting themselves to the Word of God. Over in Ephesians, let me read to you what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 to drive this point home. Ephesians chapter 2, it speaks of the church being a household of faith. It, It speaks of us being united together in this household of God. And it says in verse 20 of Ephesians 2, This household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And down in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 4, it says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he's saying God gave us the New Testament realities, the New Testament truths, through his apostles. When the early church gathered to look at the different letters that were out there to see which one should be in the canon of Scripture, which one should be included in what we call our Bible, the test, the major test was apostolicity. Did an apostle write this? Or a a, a cohort of an apostle? Does it have apostolic weight and authority? And so when it says in Acts chapter 2 that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they were devoting themselves to the very Word of God. Now, a couple of words about the apostles' teaching. First of all, the apostles' teaching was evangelistic. Evangelistic. If you read through the book of Acts, often it uses the word teaching, didasco, in, in the, the context of them sharing the truth of the gospel with unbelievers. And so the apostles would teach in a very evangelistic way. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is a good example of this. He was preaching the gospel. He was teaching about Jesus Christ and people's need for Christ. Their teaching was evangelistic. Listen to me, if a church is teaching the Word of God, but it never calls lost people to be saved, something's missing. Something's missing. Their their, their teaching was, 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 was focused on reaching the lost with the truth of the gospel. Also, the apostles' teaching was instructive for the church. Acts 11, 26, Acts 8, 10, 11, the word teaching is used to speak of believers being, being taught the word of God so that they could grow in their faith. So listen, the, the apostles' teaching was focused on outsiders so that they could become insiders, and it was focused on building up the insiders. It was a very balanced presentation of the truths of God's Word. And back in Acts 2, the apostles' teaching was accompanied by signs and wonders. Look what it says in verse 43 of Acts chapter 2. It says, Awe, literally fear, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through who? The apostles. This was God's way of of saying to the people of Jerusalem, Listen to these apostles. What they are saying has, has weight. It has authority. And he accompanied their teaching with signs and wonders to get people's attention so they would give a listening ear to the apostles. Over in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul writes, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So God would... would uh, put his stamp of approval on these apostles' teaching by accompanying their teaching with signs and wonders. Now, what does that all mean for us? They devoted themselves. 
to the apostles' teaching. Here's what it means. It means that biblical teaching is the foundation of a healthy church. Biblical teaching is the foundation of a healthy church. A church, simply, listen, will not be healthy without a steady diet of the entire counsel of the Word of God. We've got to prioritize biblical teaching because... The Bible is our final authority for faith, what we believe, and practice what we do, how we live out what we believe. It's got to be the foundation. If it's not the foundation, the church will not be healthy. Listen, no matter how big it is. Did you know that numerics are not always a sign of church health? Did you know that? When I was a junior in high school, I had a certain teacher... And this teacher didn't teach. We'd walk in the classroom and we'd sit down and begin to kind of visit with our friends. And before we knew it, the bell would ring to leave. And there was no lesson. We, she would sit up at the front and kind of visit with different folks. And, and occasionally she'd call me up to the front. She'd say, Wade, and she'd hand me a $20 bill. She'd say, will you go get donuts for the class? Now you administrators, school administrator, there, you're, you're cringing at this, I know. And I'd jump in my car, and I'd go to the local bakery, and I'd get some donuts, and I'd come back, and we'd just eat donuts. And there was just very little teaching in this class. I mean, I didn't learn the subject that I was supposed to be learning. But can I tell you something? I loved it. My classmates, we, man, we had a ball. We loved the class. We weren't complaining. I mean, no one was going to the administration saying, she's not teaching us. We're eating donuts. Please do something about this. We loved it. I mean, she was very, very popular, but we weren't getting what we needed. Now, can I tell you this? You can build a church on things other than the Word of God, and people may love it. You may fill up auditoriums because you're giving them what they want, ear-tickling, instead of what they need, The entire counsel of God. And so biblical teaching is what we need. Not a bunch of stories and and lights and smoke. No, we need the, the, the teaching of the entire counsel of the Word of God. That's what we need. And that's what happened in the early church. That's the first mark of a healthy church, biblical teaching. Number two, passionate worship. What does a healthy church look like? Well, it's, it's, it's built upon the foundation of the Word of God, and it is characterized by passionate worshipers. Look what it says in Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Verse 47, praising God. They were having favor with all the people. Now, how do we know that the early church were passionate worshipers. Well, first of all, the church in Jerusalem celebrated the gospel by observing the ordinances. Jesus gave his church two ordinances to practice. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate tonight in our evening worship time, and the ordinance of baptism. And they did both. Look what it says in verse 41. Those who received his word were what? What? Baptized. So they, they celebrated and put into practice the ordinance of believers' baptism. And in verse 42 it says, They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The definite article is there. Not just breaking of bread, 
not just eating a meal, that's found a little later in the passage, but they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This probably refers to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, where they would, they would drink the cup and eat the bread as a remembrance of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, just like Jesus told them to do. So they took the ordinances seriously. So Ed, why are the ordinances, Lord's Supper, baptism, why are they such a big deal? Listen, because they are both reflections of the gospel. Every time someone is baptized, you are seeing a message preached. You are reminded that Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and early on the third day, he rose from the grave. And you're reminded that when somebody meets Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the old self dies, and as Romans 6 says, they are raised to walk in newness of life. You're celebrating the gospel when you see baptism or when you are baptized. And the Lord's Supper, the broken body, the shed blood, the reality that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, you are remembering the the love that Jesus displayed when he went to the cross to die for our sins, right? So they're a big deal because every time you do them, you are celebrating the gospel, the good news, not just religious ritual. You are rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus. And they did this. Took it seriously. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. To the Lord's Supper. Also, this church not only observed the ordinances, but the church in Jerusalem praised God. Verse 47, it says they were praising God. The word praise there is the word aineo in the Greek. It means, listen, to speak of the excellence of a person, object, or event. That's what the word means in the Greek language. To speak of the excellence of a person. See, we've made praise into musical preference. Well, I like this kind of music. I like this kind of music. I like it. Listen, praise is all about speaking of the excellency of our great God. It's not about preference. It's about who God is. And it says here, they were praising God. They were speaking of His excellence. They were speaking of His worth. They were giving praise to the one whom praise was due to. So wait, wait, what should we learn from that? Listen, we are called to worship as a response to God's mighty works and amazing grace. We should emulate this early church. Over in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, the Bible says, Through him, Jesus, then let us continually, everyone say continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Praise and worship is a, listen, it's a response to all that God has done for us in his grace and mercy and love. And God, listen, wants us to respond. And a church that is healthy is excited about praising God. Responding to His work in our lives. Have you ever sent a text? Maybe it's a nice text. Said something, said something nice or meaningful. And the person didn't text you back? And you begin to wonder, oh, well, I, did I make them mad? Did I, what's, what's going on? Do they, are they mad? Are they angry? Do they, do they not care? Do they, do they not feel the same way? And, and you start building these scenarios in your mind, and the person just left their phone in the car, right? 
They didn't know you texted them. But it's a, it's a bad feeling, isn't it, to, to put yourself out there and get no response. What do you think it looks like when the God of the universe sent His Son to die for our sins? And He saved us by His grace and He gets very little authentic, passionate response. He sees a bunch of people just going through the motions. Just going through the motions. Not really passionate about what Christ has done. What do you think that looks like from God's perspective? The Lord is looking for true worshipers that worship Him in spirit and in truth. That are excited about Jesus. That's the mark of a of a healthy church. So are you a passionate worshiper? Do you come week after week to respond to God's greatness? Do you go to your prayer closet to respond to God's greatness? Are you a passionate worshiper of the Lord Jesus? There's a third mark of a healthy church. It is loving fellowship. Loving fellowship. Look what it says in verse 42 of Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and The fellowship. The fellowship. So what's going on here? They are are living out what real fellowship is. The word fellowship there is the word koinonia. You've heard that before, undoubtedly. Uh, It comes from the word koine, which means common. And the word koinonia means that a group of people have something in common. Something that unites them, something that brings them into relationship with one another. It can refer to the sort of harmony created by, by shared purpose. That's what Craig Keener writes. So, so koine, koinonia, fellowship in the life of the church, is, it goes far beyond eating a meal together. Can I get an amen? Now, eating can be part of it, we'll see that in a minute. But it's more than that. You know, in the middle part of the 1900s, we, churches started building, building these uh, dining halls, and we called them fellowship halls. And nothing wrong with that, but, but we started connecting in our mind, fellowship is eating at the dining hall. That's fellowship, right? But outside the walls of the church, church members are struggling, hurting. No one's checking on them. No one's praying for them. No one's spending time with them. They're just drowning in this world and about to go under. And they wonder if anybody cares. They're looking more for more than just fried chicken in a fellowship hall. They're looking for koinonia. A group of people bound together with with like purpose. The early church models true community. They model it for us. What does it look like? Well, they model it for us. It says that they, they devoted themselves to this koinonia, to this fellowship. So wait, what does true community look like? If it's more than dining halls, what does true community look like? Well, look in your notes. First of all, it's, it, it, it speaks of united hearts. United hearts. Look what it says in verse 44. It says, 
and all who believed were together. So these people were united by their belief in Jesus Christ. They had a common belief, a common purpose, a common focus, and that belief, that purpose, that focus was Jesus Christ. And they were close because they were all about Jesus. And that focus on Jesus brought them together. Right? It brought them together. Let me just illustrate this for a moment. Dave, come up here for a second. My friend Dave Snyder. Go stand right over there. Go stand right over there. Let's just say that this this pulpit represents Jesus. And Dave and I are focused on Jesus. So if we're focused on Jesus, look how far apart we are right now, we're going to start moving towards Christ together. Look what happens in the distance between me and Dave. We come together. Why? Because our focus is the same. United purpose. Thanks, Dave. United hearts. It wasn't planned. Wasn't planned. And so we see here that this church had real fellowship because they believed together about Jesus. And it brought them closer and closer to one another. Also, what does true community look like? It, it, it speaks of spending time together. Nothing fancy, just hanging out together. Look what it says in verse 46. Day by day. Notice it doesn't say week by week, it says day by day. Day by day. Attending the temple together, they go to temple to worship and breaking bread in their homes. Now notice there it doesn't say the breaking of bread. It says the breaking of bread in verse 42. Here it just says breaking bread. So I believe verse 42 speaks of the Lord's Supper. I believe this verse speaks of just eating together. They would just get together and they would share a meal together. And, and, and I, you know, I was giving fellowship halls a hard time a few minutes ago, but there is something... Uh, there is something intimate about sharing a meal with other people, isn't there? For some reason, you, sh- you let your guard down. You, around that table, there's, there, there's a closeness that happens when people share a meal together. And day by day, they, they liked each other, and they got together. They needed each other. Remember, they were just a small movement in the midst of, of a bunch of unbelievers that wanted to, to stop that movement, to persecute them. We'll see that next week. And, and so they, they were gathering together. They needed each other. They needed that fellowship. They needed that koinonia. They needed to be together. And so they literally... Spent time together. Here's what we've learned at Longview Point. It's one thing to talk about discipleship. It's another thing for people to actually begin to live life together. I mean, to really spend time with each other, check on each other, be there for one another. And there's a lot of reasons for that. People are busier than they've ever been. I'm busy, you're busy, we're all busy. I, I, I get that. But somehow we've got to figure out how to hang out. Right? There's something spiritual about hanging out. There really is. And so they, they spent time together. That, that, is, that is what true community looks like. But here's the third thing. They were involved in helping one another. What's true community? It's when people help one another. Look what it says in verse 44. All who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and 
belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. What's happening here? The church is helping each other. Now remember, they were doing church together, doing life together in the midst of a hostile culture. You're going to see next week how they begin to be persecuted for following Jesus. And undoubtedly, there were people that lost their jobs. Their their boss was a traditional, conservative, orthodox Jew that was taught by the Pharisees in the synagogue and the Sadducees in the temple that this movement called Christianity was a cult and needed to be stopped. And this person has an employee show up one day that says, I'm a follower of Christ. And they say, well, you can find another job. You're not working here. And so, undoubtedly, these followers of Christ fell into economic turmoil and hardship. And so the people began to get together and say, what can we do? And they would do things like have a yard sale. They began to sell their goods. And they compile their yard sale and say, hey, let's make sure that we cover this family because he just lost their job. Let's make sure they have food to eat for the next month. They begin to take care of each other. That's that's an entirely different level, isn't it? They spent time together. They lived life together. They actually gave of their resources to help one another. That's what true community looks like. Because here's the deal. Genuine affection for others leads to action. If you really love somebody and you see them hurting, you're going to do something about it, right? Genuine affection for others leads to action. That's what's happening in the early church. They put their money and their, their possessions where their mouth was. It's extraordinary to see. Church history tells us about a German village named Hernhut. And in the early part of the 1700s, 18th century... Religious exiles that came from different countries where they did not have freedom to worship began to gather at Hernhut. A large group of people from Moravia, modern-day Czech Republic, came because they were persecuted for wanting to follow Jesus. So they came to Hernhut to escape that religious persecution. And the, 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 the village grew with all of these religious exiles. And you know what they began to do in Hernhut? They began to just spend time together every day. They'd meet in groups and encourage each other and check on each other and hold each other accountable. They would worship together. They would pursue Jesus together. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing of this this religious community, this this spiritual koinonia happening in Hernhut. You say, well, that sounds very inwardly focused. They just get together and just hang out together in this village and and, you know, just enjoy each other, but th- that's it? No, no, no. Listen, the Moravians were the forerunners of the modern missionary movement. They began to send out missionaries all over the world because they pursued Jesus together, and they knew that's what Jesus wanted. So it was not, a, it was not this closed circle that didn't care about anyone else outside the circle. It was real life together. It was communion. It was fellowship, it was care, it was affection, but they still cared about those who were not yet in the circle. That is biblical fellowship. And that's a mark of a healthy church. Let me give you a fourth thing, fervent prayer. Fervent prayer, it says there in 
Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Notice the, the definite articles there. The breaking of bread, I believe that's the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. I believe this means they had, they had structure to their prayers. They were praying for specific things together. They, they were people that gathered together to pray for specific things together. Now here's what's interesting. Prayer is highlighted about 30 times in the book of Acts. It was a core component of the explosive growth of the early church. 30 times they mentioned prayer. It was just part of who they were. And just very quickly, follow along, we see the early church praying for protection as they were persecuted. We see them praying for power. God, give us power to, to share your good news with the lost and dying world. That We see them praying for healing of those who were sick as a sign of the activity of God in their midst. We see them praying for direction. That God would show them what they should do, where they should send people as missionaries. We see them praying for lost people. Praying for those that were far from God. That they would experience God. Lost people. And we see them praying simply as an act of worship. Just praying, thanking God, praising His great name. We see the early church highlighting prayer, fervent prayer. And the mark of a healthy church, listen, is prayer. Now I want you to hear me carefully. Just come in real close for a second. A church can be doctrinally sound and can appear to be healthy and even growing. But they can do that. They can achieve success in the Christian culture's eyes. They can do that in their own power. It's possible. If you know the right things to do and the right machinery to get going, you can put together church in a way that draws other people. But that kind of church will not have true kingdom impact. A church that's going to change the world is a church that prays, knowing they need the power of God. Here's what David Platt writes. Prayer was the source of life in the early church. It was the air they breathed day in and day out. It was central. The, listen, the driving force of everything they did. And I'm convinced one of the diseases of the modern evangelical church, especially in America, is we have taken that which was fundamental in the early church and we have made it supplemental in our churches today. We've made it supplemental to where prayer, listen, is an optional program for a faithful few as opposed to the driving force behind everything the church does. Convicting words, isn't it? Prayer is not something that just a few folks are supposed to be doing in life of the church. It should drive all of our lives. Personally, family, corporately, we should be people marked by prayer. Why? Because Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if we really believe that, we will pray. One day, some visitors came to Charles Spurgeon's church. In the late 1800s, he was a pastor of a mega church in London, England, a great preacher of the Word of God. And some visitors came by and were looking around at the Metropolitan Tabernacle and Spurgeon said, I'd like to show you the boiler room. 
And they thought that was odd. You know, in that day and time, steam was a primary source of energy. They would have boiler rooms that, would, that they would use to heat buildings. Grimy places. And these visitors thought, well, that's odd. Uh, the boiler room. And he took them down uh, into a basement area and they opened a door. And there was a room full, hundreds of people praying. And Spurgeon said, this is the boiler room. This is what gives our church energy and life. This is what makes this church go. One time Spurgeon was asked, hey, all the things you've done, you, you, you started a new church, you sent out missionaries, you started orphanages, your, your sermons go all over the world. There's no telling how many people have been saved through your ministry. How, what do you attribute your impact to? And here's what he said very simply, my people pray for me. And so if we're going to be a church that impacts a lost and dying world, I mean really impacts them with the gospel, we've got to be a church that prays. This is the mark of a healthy church. But there's one final thing I want you to see. Wait, what does a healthy church look like? Well, it's a church of biblical teaching, a church of passionate worship, a church of loving fellowship, a church of fervent prayer. But fifth and last, it's a church of kingdom impact. Look at what happens in this church. Verse 47. So they were praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The work of God in and through the early church was compelling. It says they were having favor with all the people. Not the religious leaders. They wanted to stamp out this movement of Christ's followers. But the people saw something that was compelling. They had probably never seen that kind of passion before. They had never seen that kind of community before. People helping each other out by selling their possessions. And they looked at these believers and they thought, man, there's something going on here that's special. And it says they had favor with all the people. Wouldn't you love it if Longview Point was known by others as a church where God is doing something special. Not a a church that's preeminent or prominent or any of that stuff. What if people just knew you and knew other people at Longview Point, they saw something they'd never seen before, and they said, God is doing something at that church. This healthy church captured the attention of the people in Jerusalem. But secondly, the Spearfield church was seeing God save people every day. Unbelievable. 3,000 folks saved. Say, well, that's pretty extraordinary. And it is, but look what it says, the last verse. Day by day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. Wow. Wow. Every day, people giving their lives to Jesus. The Lord doing it, saving folks, adding them to the church. The Spirit-filled church was seeing God save people day by day by day by day. They were having great kingdom impact. Which leads me to this statement. Our goal, our desire, should be a harvest of souls. Isn't that what it's all about? 
Not just us gathering together because we like each other. Not just gathering together because there's some, maybe some programming things here that meets the needs of my family. All that's fine. I hope we like each other, and I hope that your family's being equipped. But shouldn't our central, overarching purpose be to make disciples of the lost? That's the Great Commission, right? So shouldn't we want to see a harvest of souls? People being saved day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. You know, all through human history, agrarian cultures celebrate the harvest. There's something special about cultivating and sowing seed and then... God gives the increase, God gives the growth, and, and they harvest, and, and, and the people are so grateful for the bounty, so grateful that God has provided yet another year. They're grateful for, the, that's what the first Thanksgiving was about, right? A group of people that were about to, to die because they didn't have the resources they needed, but, but they got some help, and, and, and they were celebrating harvest, celebrating God's provision. Listen to me. There's nothing like a harvest and there's nothing like a harvest of souls. And we, may we be a church that is forced daily to celebrate. Because we keep seeing God bring in the harvest. By His grace, for His glory, using His people. Wouldn't that be glorious? So you say, wait, what should I walk away with today? All these different marks of a healthy church. What, what should I leave this building with? Here it is. Here's the point of it all. You ready? I had a long sentence and had all the, you know, tried to sum up the entire sermon, but I came up with a shorter sentence. It's really an equation. And here it is. Church health equals church growth. Church health equals church growth. Real church growth. People being added because they're being saved. People growing in their faith. People growing close together. That's church growth, right? And church health leads to church growth. And when you get those two things out of order, and your goal begin, be, uh, becomes church growth, not church health, you may have a lot of people, but you're not going to reach a lost and dying world that way. Church health equals church growth, which equals kingdom expansion.